Welcome to Kids Considered, where two pediatricians discuss children's health topics of interest to parents in a podcast with new subjects considered every episode. I'm Dr. Lena Vanderlist. And I'm Dr. Dean Blumberg. And we're both pediatricians at UC Davis Children's Hospital in Sacramento, California. Procedure. You know, tonsillectomies were the most frequent surgical procedure in the U.S. up until the 60s. And I remember some studies that actually showed that in some towns that more than like half the kids ended up getting <laughs> like tonsillectomies. <laughs> Yeah. And while the rates of tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy have definitely decreased significantly over the past 50 years, they're still really one of the most common surgical procedures performed in kids, with over 500,000 cases performed annually in children under 15 years old. It's only second to ear tube insertion, which we discussed in a recent episode. So to keep with our recent theme of ears, nose, and throat conditions, we are joined by Dr. Aaron Fawcett, a pediatric otolaryngologist who's here to speak with us about the tonsils and the adenoids. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me um, today and super excited to talk about, talk about tonsils. It's, it is the second most common patients that we do see in our clinics. So let's start off this episode with a little anatomy lesson. So I think most parents are familiar with the tonsils. The adenoids are a little bit more mysterious, though, to, to parents and I think to some doctors, too. So could you talk about where they're located and what they do? Yeah, so when I am chatting with parents and even with my little patients, I ask them to open their mouth. And usually some families get confused at the uvula, which is the little dangly thing in the middle of our back of our throat, um, is our tonsils. But it's actually, it's those two little balls that are sitting lateral to that. So those are the tonsils, and they come in all shapes and sizes and look different ways. The adenoids now, as you mentioned, is a little bit more difficult um, to kind of visualize and explain to parents. Um, and so I do have a really good picture that I like to show them. But it is a pad of tissue that is in the back of the nose, and it is midline um, with our eustachian tubes that are kind of sitting on the side of that. So if you can kind of picture that, it sits um, behind the, the soft palate, the adenoids. And we talked in our last episode about the eustachian tube and its function of like equalizing pressure in the middle ear. So check out the hearing loss episode for that. Mm -hmm. And then you can, I mean, I can see the tonsils, right? So parents can see the tonsils sometimes too, depending how their kids open their mouth. But can, can parents see the adenoids or? Parents cannot see the adenoids. I would be um, very impressed if there was a parent that came in that said that they could see their, their kids' adenoids. Um, they might have something else going on. So adenoids are in the far back of the nose. Um, the only way that we are able to visualize them is if we use a little tiny camera that we place in the nose, um, and that can allow us to see that adenoid pad. Okay, so when the tonsils and adenoids are functioning normally, right, they're immune tissue, so they respond to infections or allergens by getting a little larger during that response, producing immune cells to fight off that infection. And while this is occurring, like your kid might notice some throat discomfort, you know, their tonsils might get a little bigger, they might find it slightly harder to breathe through their nose. But this should be transient, right? This should improve over time once those allergens or that infection improves. It's a good point there. So 
especially around this time um, when there it's windy and there's a lot of allergens that are in the air, we do find that kids' adenoids um, can get a little bit um, bigger. Um, and that is because the adenoids are doing a couple things. They're kind of collecting those allergens and then they get kind of swollen because of inflammation. So in theory, if you were to take away those allergens, then you would think that the adenoids would get smaller. Sometimes they don't. And that's usually when those kids are coming, coming to see us. So the tonsils and the adenoids are working hard. They're working hard to take care of those allergens. They're working hard to prevent infections. But then they sometimes do become a problem when they're too big. So what are some signs that a child may be having issues with the tonsils and or the adenoids? Yeah, so I I like to look at um, the adenoids and tonsils at different ages, and then sometimes that's together. So when we get the younger kid, um, the toddler that's coming in, maybe less than two years old, and they're having a lot of nasal congestion, maybe some um, ear infections, um, some snot, maybe we're hearing them have a lot of um, sinus infections, parents are very concerned. Um that's when we would start to think about the adenoids. It's like, okay, the kid is, this patient is having some nasal symptoms and uh, we've gotten rid of, we've done irrigations and then the thing and all the things. And so that's when we would start to get concerned about the adenoids. Some of those kids also mouth breathe. Um, they tend to snore. And that also points to enlarged tonsils as well. So what I ask, I ask parents, is your kid snoring? Are they mouth breathing? Are they restless at night? I find the restlessness is the kid is trying to get comfortable and they're trying to open up that airway. And so just trying to find a way that they can breathe at night. So that's kind of the natural way that a kid finds their way to breathe. Other things that we uh, look at now, which with more research is maybe they're agitated during the day or they have daytime fatigue or they are um, there's getting some complaints about hyperactivity. Kids that used to be potty trained and now they're having quote unquote accidents at night, grinding teeth. These are all things that could be because a kid's tonsils and adenoids are enlarged. So say a kid comes to me with one of those symptoms, right? And I want to get a good look at the tonsils. We talked about the adenoids. I'll typically have, you know, them say, ah, Oh, stick out their tongue and say, ah, and this without fail, they're always like, they stick out their tongue, but they don't say, ah. And I'm like, I'm not just telling you to say, to, to do that, to make you look stupid. <laughs> I <laughs> <Right>. actually <laughs> need you to say it for your tongue to drop. Right. And, and so just so parents know, and I mean, I don't think I do this until I went into medicine. There is a reason that we tell you to actually <laughs> make a vocalization so that your the back, the muscles in the back of your throat contract and we can see better, or we have to use one of those tongue depressors that nobody likes very much. Nobody to do likes that. those. No. <laughs> um, and so we might get a better view of the tonsils to see if they look enlarged to us. Um, but like you mentioned, like in the ENT office, they have a little camera that can look into the back of the nose and take a look at the adenoids. Your pediatrician probably does not have that. I have seen sometimes people order like a lateral x ray to look at the size of the adenoids. Is this? recommended or not necessary? It's a really good question. So if a patient has been sent to my office and there is a concern with adenoid hypertrophy and I've looked in the, in the mouth and the tonsils are on the smaller side, 
Then I ideally would offer the scope to put the camera in the nose. But sometimes parents don't want that for, for their child. And so at that time, I would recommend a neck x-ray. Now, if a kid comes in already and it's already been done, I'm happy to have that information. And then we can forego the scope exam. So I think you'll get some different answers about this. It's not wrong. And I think it does provide some extra information, especially when we are just trying to figure out if the adenoids are big. I always think like there's things that are easy for us at like a large pediatric institution. So I I don't routinely get it because I can send them over to you. Um, Right, right. But like I think about my colleagues that are working in like rural communities, right? And they like need to have more things in their toolbox that that maybe that might be something that is is more indicated in, in their practices. So let's talk about the specific um, issues that you mentioned in more detail. First, you talked about snoring, sleep apnea. So how is sleep apnea diagnosed in kids? Yeah, so I do like to clarify this um, a lot with our with our parents that there is two different diagnoses um, when we are talking about these sleeping issues. And so we have obstructive sleep apnea, and then we have obstructive sleep disordered breathing. So obstructive sleep apnea is an actual diagnosis that can only be diagnosed if we have a sleep study. We will talk about indications um, for a sleep study um, soon, but what I do um, really want to emphasize is that sleep apnea, you need a sleep study. What we can say is a patient that is snoring, having mouth breathing, all the symptoms that were, some or all symptoms that we were discussing earlier, we would call that obstructive sleep disordered breathing, and still indications for tonsillectomy would be warranted for that. So then maybe, depending on the child's symptoms, you don't need a sleep study every time you're considering a a tonsillectomy. You do it for some patients, but maybe others, you're going to do the tonsillectomy anyway, so the sleep study doesn't add any useful information? Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So there are some patients that I see, and I see that their sleep study is ordered in two months, and they have all the symptoms, and they have enlarged tonsils. Um, I usually tell parents, unless you really need this data point, if you need to know that your kid has obstructive sleep apnea, then we can go on and get the sleep study. But not every kid needs that. And so we do have some guidelines that we do follow that are put out by our our academy. What we look at for indications for sleep study in the pediatric population would be patients that are less than two years old, obese patients, those that have cranial facial abnormalities, Trisomy 21 patients, patients with trisomy 21, um, sickle cell disease, and then um, some different uh, any sort of neurological um, neurological issues. And so, those patients we would recommend a sleep study um, just so that we do know a if they have obstructive sleep apnea, just because their surgical um, risk of surgical complications could be increased, and then also so we could know the severity of their sleep apnea in case they need to stay the night, um, if we need to do further testing like EKGs um, or test x-rays. And what criteria do you generally use for considering a tonsillectomy and, and adenoidectomy? In the pediatric population, it is way different than the adult population. Uh, mild obstructive sleep apnea is defined as having just one event an hour. 
So at that point, if a kid is having just one event an hour and has these big tonsils and perhaps have these big, um, these enlarged adenoids, then the studies show that tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy could be beneficial. And so we will counsel patients, um, parents on that. Now in our mild population, we can prescribe some um, some medications and do a trial for a few months. Uh, but a lot of these kids that do have the enlarged tonsils end up getting their tonsils taken out. When you talk about the medications that can be prescribed, would it be like a nose spray, like a steroid nose spray to kind of help shrink the inflammation? So, yeah, so we are talking about nasal steroids. Um, the one that we use most commonly is fluticasone um, nasal spray. And we were offering um, Singular, or some know it as Monolucas, but as we know, there is a black box warning um, with some mood um, that could cause some mood changes and stuff. So we really have to counsel parents um, on that. And so some parents say, well, I don't want the risk of my kid having these mood changes. I don't know if they're being a toddler or if it's the medication or just having the temporary discomfort of having their tonsils taken out. Yeah. And just so parents know what the sleep studies look like, generally for younger kids, you have to have it done in what's called a sleep lab. So it's almost like you'll take your kid to go to sleep at this testing center, right? They'll put their PJs on, you'll brush their teeth, and then they'll try to get them to fall asleep with like wires hooked up to them to monitor their respiratory rate and their oxygen level. And so some parents are like, that was the worst night's sleep I've ever had in my life. As a parent, you can pretty much expect not to sleep. Usually young kids can sleep through a lot, but it's not a super easy thing to do. And like you mentioned, like they're having one event per hour. So they're there for, you know, the majority of the night. Yeah, it's funny. Um, as you know, um, one of my daughters got a sleep study done at the age of two uh, recently. And oh my goodness, I it's I say, hey, I've been offering sleep studies to all of these, all of these patients, parents, and then I was like looking at my at my daughter, and her head is wrapped up in, you know, there's all these stickers <laughs> on her head, and there she has a little wrap around it, and you know, only slept for half the night, and and so, and that's another thing with toddlers is sometimes we just don't get the data that we need, and so mm-hmm. sometimes just symptoms our best. And I will add, which I should have uh, mentioned before, is I, I ask parents, hey, send me, like, do you have any videos of your mm-hmm. kids sleeping? Because sometimes that's really all um, that kind of like is makes it a slam dunk when I just watch their videos. We've talked about the events. Could you just tell us what is an event that you're looking for? Yeah. So um, either a complete, a complete apnea. So the child has stopped breathing completely for several seconds, or if decreased oxygen levels um, while they're sleeping. And so we have hypopneas and then we have apneas. And all of those come together to create a score, um, which we call an apnea hypopnea index. And that's what we use um, to identify if a child has mild, moderate, or severe sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea. So during the sleep study, that's what it's, it's measuring, how often the child's breathing, if they stop breathing, if they're getting enough oxygen, if carbon dioxide is building up, and then they'll be able to, to give you a score and, a, and whether some of those are, are events or not. But sometimes you could tell if the parent takes a video of the kid and you just like see that the child stops breathing for a certain period of time, then sometimes you'll say, that's good enough for me. I can, I can see it with my own eyes. I don't need a formal sleep study. Yeah, I'm like, this is great. I'm watching this video. The kid has propped themselves up on their own pillow. They're having some snoring. 
and then sometimes it'll stop and then you'll hear a big gasp or a cough and I'm like yep that's that's it there we are so we're going to get um into more details of the surgical procedure later but what percent of kids with sleep apnea will respond to tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy the data is very subjective when we are looking at obstructive um, sleep disordered breathing because we don't have an actual data point. But so we say that a majority of kids that are otherwise healthy and have the diagnosis of of obstructive sleep disordered breathing um, will improve. Now, when we are looking at, it's a little bit easier to to give you that answer when we're looking at our obstructive um, sleep apnea patients, um, there's a really good study that I do quote um, a lot and have parents uh, look up to if they do want to look up any sort of studies. It's called the CHAT study, C-H-A-T. Um, it was a multi-institutional um, study that um, had thousands of kids that had various amounts of um, different obstructive sleep apnea. And what we did find is that kids, um, majority of kids that had a severe sleep apnea after their tonsils and adenoids did come out, they had the um, the biggest shift in terms of the decrease in their AHI. And so, again, that's why um, we're pretty pretty adamant about, about the procedure. So we've talked a lot about um, tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy for sleep-disordered breathing and sleep apnea. But specifically when looking at the tonsils, I know there's also like recurrent pharyngitis or recurrent strep throat infections. And I think this is where a lot has changed. Probably, Dr. Dean, when you were growing up, like one strep infection and outlet your tonsils, right? (laughs) And I think that everyone has been like, whoa, okay, maybe like maybe we need to be a little bit more cautious with this alone. What are the current recommendations um, about tonsillectomy specifically for for infection? What we look at is we have a criteria called the paradise um, criteria. And what that looks at is the minimum number of tonsillitis episodes um, in kids. And so Seven episodes in the past year um, would meet criteria for tonsillectomy. Five episodes per year for the past two years and a minimum of three episodes per year of the past three years. And we also look at what these features look like. And so um, that would require a fever, um, any sort of uh, cervical lymphadenopathy, so any swollen lymph nodes, if the tonsils have exudate on them, um, so if they have any kind of white film on them, and then um, a positive culture for um, for strep. We also prefer and really like when there's documentation of each episode, so then we really can say, hey, look, this is your child does meet criteria um, criteria for this. One other thing um, that's not necessarily mentioned in, in the paradise criteria as, as a strong um, indication, but what we do look at is it's affecting quality of life. So if, it, um, if a kid is missing a lot of school, then we will also consider tonsillectomy. I have a patient. We were just talking about how I always bring up my own patients on here. But I have a patient who just keeps getting these back-to-back-to-back tonsillitis. And it's always swabbed negative for strep, but it looks so streppy. It's like so red and it has so much exudate. And I know mono sometimes can look like that. And But I have no idea what's causing this kid's recurrent 
throat infection. So poor guy I've had to treat with like steroids to kind of like because he can barely breathe. But like looking at those criteria, it just seems like a lot of infections for him to get his tonsils out. Um, And so and I'm wondering, like, is this one infection because it's never really gotten better or like it kind of waxes and wanes? So I don't know. It's just I just feel for this poor kid. Those patients are so hard. And sometimes sometimes I and I think my my colleagues would agree with this. We're just like not every tonsil infection is strep throat, especially now with um, just exposure to so many different bacteria. Um, And so I think that sometimes we are a little bit a little bit lenient off of the the criteria. But as, as long as those other those other things are checked, then we mm-hmm. would consider um, taking the tonsils out. Yeah, I know. It's so tough. Like at everything in medicine, right? Like nothing actually fits the textbook, but it's good to have the guidelines or else you end up doing things unnecessarily. I think that in our recurrent tonsillitis patients, um, they're usually older. And so I do counsel them a little differently than I would with my sleep disordered uh, patients um, in terms of pain and, and whatnot. So we've talked about obstructive sleep apnea and recurrent tonsillitis as being the common causes for indications for tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy. Are there less common reasons that you might perform these procedures? Yeah, so um, we will perform a tonsillectomy on patients that have had bad tonsil infections complications. So a patient that maybe has had a peritonsillar abscess, and maybe it didn't grow strep. Um, but we do look at that as, a, as an indication for getting their tonsils out. Um, there's also um, a fever syndrome that we do see in, in kids um, where they just get these really, really high fevers. Um, maybe have some throat pain, but it's really the fevers that are, are causing some issues. And after any sort of rheumolo- um, rheumatological um, issue has been has been kind of cut out, then we will consider will consider tonsillectomy on those patients as well. So these are kids with what I call PFAPA or periodic fever, apthystomatitis, pharyngitis, and adenitis. So it's an acronym for that. So it's a weird kind of a weird name. I think we talked a little bit about it when we talked about fevers. Fevers, yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So what about tonsil stones? It's my understanding that these are not an indication, but they are bizarre and irritating to people. If you don't take the tonsils out for stones, do you have any recommendations for what older kids or even adults can do about them? Yeah. So um, first, I was going to kind of define what a tonsil stone is. Um, so tonsil stones are like these like white and yellow formations that are usually in the in the little crypts and so in the little holes um, of the tonsil. And they can be formed from food particles and uh, bacteria. I like to describe it to kids as there's some bacteria that has made a home back there. And now, you know, they have their little their little colonies. So what I recommend first is just really good dental hygiene. Um, So are you brushing your teeth at least twice a day? Are you flossing your teeth? Um, And some kids are like, yeah, and teenagers get them a lot. And we're like, like, yeah, I'm doing this and I still have these tonsil stones. Um, So we can consider using like a water pick um, to actually get to actually clean those stones out. Um, That does seem to um, to work for a greater population of those um, patients. Um, how about mouthwash in those older kids that yes. can gargle? Would that be yes. helpful as well? 
Yeah, okay. any sort of forceful um, movement back there would be very helpful to get those, to push those stones out. But we you also don't have recommend some... people force them out themselves. <laughs> I was going to say, we do have <laughs> some patients that will stick their finger back there. Um, I mean, I say, hey, get a water pick. I think that's <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> More hygienic. Yes, agreed. Yeah. yeah. We will take out some tonsils with... Um, that have stones, but we really do try to push conservative management first. Could you talk about the procedure itself, like the tonsil, tonsillectomy and the adenoidectomy? I mean, how how is this done, and how do you tell families to prepare for their child having this, these procedures? Yeah, so we have um, the same conversation multiple times um, with families. So the first um, counseling, preoperative counseling starts in the clinic. And, and so depending on age, um, is a little bit different how I counsel the families, um, and, and the patients, but let's just talk about our average patient who has, um, mild to moderate obstructive sleep apnea or obstructive sleep disordered breathing. Um, first, we talk about all of our indications and why we are thinking about taking the adenoids and tonsils out and how we how we got here. And then um, we're lucky here at, at UC Davis Health that we have child life in our in our preoperative areas. They're so helpful in preparing our um, our patients. And so I say, okay, we're gonna you're gonna show up um, to the hospital. It's right across the street there, and you're gonna get to draw on some sheets and there's gonna be some toys and we're gonna have a good time. And you're going to meet the whole team, the nurses, the doctors that help you get to sleep, our child life. Sometimes there's dogs hanging out. We're just having a really good time. Um, from there, we'll go into the operating room, pretty bright lights. Sometimes if if there's a favorite song you like to listen to, if there's a movie you really like, if um, if it's PJ Maxx or... Coco Melon, we'll put that on the TV for them. And then they'll breathe into their mask um, and they'll take a and they'll start to fall asleep. From there, that's where all the pokies happen. They'll get an IV placed and then we'll go under general anesthesia. From there, the actual surgical procedure, the mouth is opened up. We retract the mouth wide open, and that's when we look at our tonsils. And we remove them. We have different techniques to remove the, the tonsils depending on who the surgeon is. And then after the tonsils are moved, removed, we make sure that the tonsillar beds are nice and dry. Um, so we have hemostasis. And after that, we start to look at the adenoids. So with the adenoids, um, we have to retract the soft palate up. And then it's kind of a weird thing to describe, but we use a mirror and we use a reflection of the mirror to identify the adenoids. We look at the eustachian tubes to make sure that we don't cause any trauma to those. And then, again, using technique um, surgeon's choice, we will shave down, um, shave down the adenoids so they are no longer obstructing the back of the nose. And then from there, we irrigate out everything, make sure there is no um, bleeding, and then the um, patient will wake up. We talk a lot about post-operative care in terms of popsicles, um, lots of lots of liquids, soft foods, things that aren't going to cause too much pain. Um, pain with with eating, and then around the clock, um, Tylenol and Motrin. What would a parent expect the recovery process to look like? And would they just need Tylenol and Motrin usually for pain control? 
I like to say seven to 14 days, 10 days being average. Younger kids are you would expect to be more, but actually they recover quicker than our older patients. So I say seven to 10 days um, with our younger kids. It's just Tylenol and Motrin, um, ibuprofen. But um, with our older kids, we can offer a stronger medication, a narcotic. We are we are trying to um, steer away from that. And so what a lot of us have been um, implementing in our practice is actually prescribing steroids to help with post-operative um, swelling and inflammation. And so, um, again, this is pretty surgeon-dependent, but we are trying to, again, really not use their the um, narcotic anymore and to really focus on on the swelling and inflammation causing um, causing the pain um, we really like to to discourage a lot of activity during the first 10 days um, and mostly because of the bleeding risk there is a the bleeding if there is bleeding it's either going to happen right after surgery so within 24 hours or between days seven and 10, sometimes 11. And what happens is those scabs in the back of the throat fall off too soon. And just like any scab, if you were to pick a scab off your arm, it would ooze. And so if that scab falls off, the back of the throat can ooze and that can cause a bleeding episode. You mentioned the adenoidectomy. Um, Is that something that you decide when you're looking with the mirror that you're going to do that or not? Or is that something that you know going in that you're going to do that? We know that most of our patients are going to require an adenoidectomy. Um, If they are having any sort of obstructive signs, then we're going to remove the adenoids. And when we say remove the adenoids, um, the adenoids is such an odd pad of tissue. And so we're not usually getting it right down to the bone. We usually do leave a little. I, I describe it as like mowing the lawn. And so... We have the lawnmower on on super short, and so we mow the lawn until we have just a little tuft of tissue there. And then you talked about bleeding as being the most common complication post-surgically. Are there any other complications that parents should look out for during the recovery process? In our younger population, dehydration is actually our most common. As we know, toddlers can get a little stubborn um, when they're not feeling well, and so it's sometimes they just don't want to. They don't want to drink, so. They become dehydrated, they develop fevers, and usually require a trip back to the emergency room or to the emergency room to require IV fluids. Um, other things, I never I never think of pain as a complication because I'm just like, your kid is going to have some throat pain. That is a normal thing. Difficulty swallowing sometimes. There's some pretty rare complications in terms of if, the, if too much of the adenoid tissue is removed. Sometimes kids will have some um, liquid that comes out of their nose. That's usually, um, if it does happen, temporary. We counsel parents that that will get better. Those are our big ones there. So just like you mentioned, um, and I'll share with our listeners, that I have the privilege of getting to take care of Dr. Fawcett's adorable daughters. And you mentioned the sleep study, which sounds really intense. (laughs) But one of your daughters is going to be having this procedure um, upcoming. And so I'm hoping you could kind of take off your surgeon hat and put on your mom hat and kind of talk to our listeners about about this process for you and, and what made you decide that it was the right thing for her. What I tell my patients, actually, when I am talking to them about surgery, I say, hey, look, it's very easy for me to walk in here and say, hey, your kid needs their tonsils and adenoids out. 
And this is the reason why. But when I'm sitting in there and Dr. Funamora is telling my wife and I that our that, you know, one of our girls needs her tonsils out because she has um, obstructive sleep apnea. Um, I everything go. I forget <laughs> it all. Tell tell me everything about the surgery. Yeah. Um, but so but so what I you know, I just I tell parents that um, I'm a, a mom first and then a surgeon. So I do recognize that this is a it's stressful. Um, it's, it's anxiety provoking. And I really normalize um, those feelings. And I I let them know that this is totally normal um, way to feel. And I feel the same way about my own child. Um, I let parents know that I treat every single one of them like my own child. And so so they will be well taken care of. Um, I try to I want them to feel comfortable um, under my care. And so I'm very upfront about what those first few days are going to look like and um, just really try to guide them um, and emotionally and mentally prepare them um, for for the week and a half to two weeks of, of recovery. Mm-hmm. And, you know, where we pediatricians usually say no popsicles, no ice cream, it kind of goes out the window when you're recovering from your tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy. You get all the all the special stuff to stay hydrated. I say, <laughs> I say you get all the things. And so I do. I give I give the kids one job. I'm like, your parent or guardian, it, their job is to worry and to, you know, have these feelings. I have, you have one job it's to find some popsicles, go to the store pick out your popsicles, pick out your ice cream, pick out your favorite snack that's, you know, going to give you some comfort. And it is all yours. Awesome. How long do they have to eat soft foods? It varies. We tell them until they're comfortable um, eating a little bit more. It used to be a solid two to three weeks of soft foods. And now we say, you know, if, if you're starting to feel better, we don't recommend, you know, eating a bag of Doritos but if you want to eat some macaroni and cheese or scrambled eggs, some or scrambled eggs, yeah, some, then we'll like we'll introduce that when when they're ready. And that's actually on the menu if um, if a kid is staying um, staying the night. Wow! So it's pretty soon, actually. Interesting. All right. Well, that wraps up today's episode about tonsillectomy, adenoidectomy, and indications for the procedure with Dr. Fawcett. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your expertise. Let's summarize today's topic. Yeah. So tonsillectomy used to be the most common procedure performed in the United States. Now it's the second most common procedure form. So it's really, really common. Yep. And indications for the procedure would be um, obstructive sleep disordered breathing, obstructive sleep apnea, recurrent tonsillitis, and then some other rare complications like if you have an abscess of your tonsil. Those would be reasons that your child might get a tonsillectomy or adenoidectomy. Mm -hmm. And then we discussed the whole procedure and all the different um, ways to prepare children for the procedure and in terms of the recovery, the most common issues to deal with are there is some pain, which generally responds to pain medication, and then there is a, a small risk of postoperative um, bleeding, um, but the surgeon takes care of that right away when they're in the first 24 hours. They're like making sure to prevent that, but that may be a, a later complication if the scabs come off and there may be oozing um, uh, about 10 days um, postoperatively. 
Do we all have our tonsils and adenoids intact in the, on this call, or has anybody had theirs removed? <laughs> I think, I think mine, are, mine, mine, are, mine are intact. <laughs> yeah, mine but, too. I think they threatened to take them out. At some point, point, but yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. So none of us have been through it. Yeah, we're in a generation... Um, where our tonsils are still are still here. Um, now we kind of focus more on sleeping habits and and development, which is why younger generations are getting their tonsils out out less. Yeah, yeah. amazing. So, what did one tonsil say to the other? Ooh, what what? You better get dressed. The doctor's going to take us out tonight. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's, a, that's one of your better ones. You can use that in the exam room. I can't wait to use that one. Thank you. <laughs> that wraps up this episode of Kids Considered. You can find more information on our website, kidsconsidered.ucdavis.edu. Follow us on Twitter at Kids Considered. And Instagram at Kids Considered. If you have feedback on this show or topics you would like us to discuss in the future, we would love to hear from you. Please call us. Our number is 916-915-3388. Or email us at kidsconsidered at gmail.com. Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us for our next podcast. Kids Considered is sponsored by UC Davis Children's Hospital. 